Hey, uh, glad you guys are here today. I just want to do a shout out to those of you watching online at the microsites in Southeast. I want to welcome you guys for being here today. Glad you can join us. So a couple of years ago, I ran a Tough Mudder race. And those of you that don't know what a Tough Mudder race, it's something that middle-aged people do that's really, really stupid. And basically, it's a, it's a 10 or 11 mile uh, uh, marathon, but there's just lots and lots of obstacles. Um, fun obstacles like belly crawling underneath electrified wire and uh, things like diving into a giant uh, pool of ice and swimming through and then getting out and running up a mountain. And, and my personal favorite, running through a taser field, literally a jungle of tasers where you just get shocked every step that you take. And the second to the last, the first time I ran it, the second to the last obstacle was a half pipe. And it was about 12 foot high. And the object was, the idea was that you ran as fast as you could up the side of the pipe. At the last minute, you leap, you grab onto the top of it, and you pull yourself up and over the wall. And that's how you complete the obstacle. And I'd already run about 10 miles and climbed lots of walls and belly crawled and did all kinds of crazy stuff. And I was tired, but I was determined I was going to make it over this half pipe. And so there we were, we were lined up in front of the half pipe, and people were going up it and trying to get over it, and, and I'm lined up, and there's a whole bunch of us just lined up waiting for a gap to open up so you could just run and do your deal. And, and all around us were a bunch of people just cheering us on, because this was the second to the last obstacle, and so it was back where all the families and friends and, and, and runners who'd already finished were, and so everyone's gathered around just cheering for you, especially because this obstacle is so hard. And so I waited and I watched, and then I saw the opening, and I just ran with everything I had. And I ran up this wall, and I leaped for the edge of that wall, and I grabbed nothing but air. <laughs> and so then I was just flailing, and then somehow I managed to get completely horizontal. And then I came down and just like face-planted on the bottom of the wall. Technically, um, I, I, there was a bounce involved, so I kind of double face-planted. So I went, ba-ba! with my face on the bottom of this thing. And the crowd, everyone that you hear goes, oh, like this is grown. And then I just slide, because of the shape of the half pipe, I slide into this humiliated pile of shame in the bottom of this thing. What I loved about it was when the crowd was there, you know, previously, the cheering. The cheering was good. The, sh the, the, the grunt of, oh, not so much, see? And that reminds me of... And I thought about that this week because this is the picture that we are, we are, we are putting out there um, in this series that we're in. That we're talking, this, this series is based on a passage out of Hebrews that talks about this great cloud of witnesses. These giants of the faith that are gathered around cheering us on. Just like when I was about to run up that wall, the, all those people that were there just cheering you on. And the series asks the question, you know, what if, what if one of these giants of the faith, these people that have come before us, that are cheering us on in our spiritual journey, what if each week one of them was able to come forward? What would they say, their experience from their life, that would speak to where we're at today in our race? And the thing about the spiritual giants, these people that have come before us, one of the things that makes them so attractive and why we keep going back to their stories is because in their stories, God seems so present and powerful and real. And isn't that the desire of our hearts? Is that's what we want. We want God to be present and powerful in our lives. 
And so today we're going to look at a giant of the faith to see how we can get that in our lives. Today the crowd is going to part and out will walk a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And as we reflect on her life, hopefully we will learn what it would take to be the kinds of people that allowed God to be present and powerful in our lives. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you've got your app, let's open it up. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 2. Before we get there, a little backstory just so you know where we're going. Most of us know about Moses and the Israelites. He, he, he brought the Israelites out of Egypt on the way to the promised land. This was the land of Canaan that God had promised them where he wanted them to go. But in order to get in, they were going to have to overcome the people that were already there, the Canaanites. And so Moses leads the Israelites to the edge. They're about to go in. Then they freak out. They go, look, that's too scary. Those Canaanites, those are big dudes. We don't think we can make it. We don't want to do this. We're scared. And so they end up wandering in the desert for an entire generation. Finally, their kids raise up. And their kids are like, we're going in. God says we can have it. We're going to take it. And so the next generation comes in under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua takes over for Moses. They're about to go into the promised land. But before they go in, Joshua wants to see what they're up against. So Joshua 2.1 begins this way. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. Jericho was a fortified frontier town right on the edge of Canaan. That the only way they were going to be able to go in and take this land, they had to start by defeating this town. And, and, and it had at least one massive wall around it. Many archaeologists say it had, in fact, two. That they'd outgrown one of the walls and literally put a second fortified wall around that. This city was going to be tough. And so, so Joshua sends these spies in to check out the city and see what they're up against. And continues on. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Bible stories always get a little sketchy at the point where the, the men of God enter the city and go and hang out with the local prostitute. It starts to feel a little awkward, like where this is going. But you've got to understand that it made sense considering what was going on. That, that uh, at that time, the prostitute's house was a prostitute's house slash motel sex. Basically, you know, you come for debauchery and a place to crash for the night. And so you got to understand that, that these spies didn't want to draw attention to themselves. They were foreigners. They, they would have looked different. They would have sounded different. Their customs were different. And so typically for a foreign traveler to be able to come into a city and stay you know, under the radar, they would go to a place like Rahab's house. And so that's where they go. The problem is their plan didn't work. They didn't stay under the radar. In fact, the king finds out about them. I feel like I'm doing a telenova right here. This is so exciting. Things just keep happening. So the king of the city finds out they're there. And so he sends his guards to go get them in Rahab's house. And so the guards go to Rahab's house, and they say, hey, we hear that there's some spies here. Well, Rahab says, well, yeah, they were here, but they, they just left. You guys, you can look around my house, but yeah, they just took off. That They were here earlier, but they wanted to get out before you closed the gate for the night. But if you take off right now, you can probably catch them. And so the guards take off. They go running out the town gate trying to stop these spies before they can get back to report to Joshua. Come to find out, back at Rahab's place, she had, in fact, hidden the spies on the roof. This was a very bold move for her. 
I mean, think about how risky that was. Here were these two foreign spies coming in to, to check out her city, and she provided shelter and safety for them. She hid them. Why would she do that? What would possess her to take a risk like that? Well, she goes up on the roof, and she talks to the guys, and we find out what possesses her. She says to the two spies, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you guys did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Here you've got this heathen, this pagan woman who would have had her little local gods that she worshipped or whatever, and she's going, these guys have nothing on your God. Your God is the God. We've been hearing stories of what your God is doing. Your God is parting seas for you and, and completely conquering your enemies. We've gotten wind of this, and we are terrified. Everybody in the city's terrified of just as we see what's going to happen. And she says, so she says this, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. This woman has taken an incredible risk. I mean, she is, she, is, she is literally, you know, betting it all on the fact that this God is who people say he is, that he is going to come in and he is going to take over, he's going to conquer this city on behalf of, the, of the, his people. And that not only that, but that he is capable of it. If she's wrong, if she gets it off, if, if, if the Israelites come against the city and they're not able to, to break through, you know that people are going to find out what she did. And that's not going to end well for her. She'll be lucky if they just kill her. The truth is that they will do far worse to both her and the family she's trying to protect. And so the two spies say, yes, we'll go ahead. We'll, we, we will. We'll, we'll protect you when we come in. And so she lowers them out the window because her, her house was actually built into the wall itself. She lowers them out the window to the ground to safety and she watches them run off. And then she just sits and she waits. And you know she has to be playing this thing through her mind, going, man, I hope I made the wrong decision. What if I didn't? I mean, I just risked it all. Or what if, what if, those, what if those spies, what if those people, those, those God's people, what if, they're, what if they don't keep their word? What if they, what if they kill me and my family? Or, or what if they take us into slavery? And she begins to play all these tapes through her head. And she waits and she watches. And about a week later, here come the Israelites. And they come against the city. And they march around the city. And under God's hands, these fortified walls, this fortress collapses. And at some point, these people find themselves at Rahab's front door. And the Bible says in chapter 6, verse 25, it says that Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. Because she hid the men, Joshua has sent a spy to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. So, so not only was this God capable of doing what they thought he could do, but his people kept their word, and they ended up taking her in with them, into their family. And what I find interesting, just a little side note, is this last line 
and she lives among the Israelites to this day. See, so oftentimes we struggle with, you know, should we believe the Bible because it was written so long after the events? But you get a very different picture here, don't you? You can almost see a scribe out in front of his tent, this guy's papyrus or whatever he's writing on, and you know, licking his pen, and he's writing the story about Joshua and the walls came down, and, and then Rahab, but they ended up saving Rahab, you know, because she hid the spies, and he, he's writing this down. He looks up, he's like, hey, Rahab, how's it going? Yeah, how's the family? Good? Awesome. See you at brunch on Tuesday? Excellent. And she lives with us to this very day, right? You get this whole real-time thing, which I think is just awesome. And that's how the story of Rahab ends in Joshua, but that's not how the story of Rahab ends. Because the rest of the Bible tells us that her story goes on. That one day, as she's living with the Israelites, she sees a cute boy named Salmon. Now, you may say there's no such thing as a cute boy named Salmon, but when your name rhymes with Rehab, you know, you really can't, you'll be too choosy. And so Rahab and Salmon... Start hanging out, start dating, and they fall in love. And one day, Salmon asks Rahab to marry him. But again, this is a telenovela, so there's more going on here. Turns out that it's more complicated than this. That, in fact, Salmon is very high up in the house of Judah, the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, he's a prince. So the prince is asking the prostitute to marry him. And the Bible doesn't go into detail here, but just human experience tells me that that had to be a rough decision for Rahab. Here's a woman who most of her life has had a very specific relationship with men. And it was not based on love, or trust, or safety. And here was not just a man, but a prince asking him to marry her. How could she trust that? I mean, what kind of risk would she have to be willing to take? Because, you know, just when she thinks about her background, the shame, the regret, who she's been, not to mention the distrust, how could I ever really trust this to somebody? As hard as it was, for her to trust these spies, I would have to think it must be harder for her to trust this man because this is a matter of the heart. Would she risk her heart that this man would love her and care for her and be there for her? Well, she does. The Bible tells us that she does, that, that she marries this man and her and Salmon and they have kids and they have a son, and his name is Boaz. And Boaz, when Boaz is older, falls in love with a young woman named Ruth. And you can read more about her because she literally has her own book in the Bible. And he marries her, and then they have kids, then their kids have kids. And their grandson is a little kid named Davy. He grows up to be King David, a man after God's own heart. And as you continue King David's bloodline, eventually you will find yourself at a boy named Jesus, the Messiah. That because of Rahab's risk, because of her, she risked with the spies and she risked her heart and she went boldly based on the fact of who God was, that if you look in the book of Matthew today, at the very front end where it goes through the genealogy of Jesus, you look at the kind of the ancestry.com part of Jesus, you will literally see the name Rahab 
the prostitute. But she's in Jesus' line. If that giant of the faith were to step from the cloud and come and challenge us or coach us or encourage us on the spiritual race, what would she say to us today? I think she'd say something like this. She would say, through risk, God's power and presence are magnified in your life. That it is through risk, through a Rahab-sized, bold risk, that God's power and his presence, those things we want, are magnified in our lives. See, and it makes perfect sense if you think about it. Because without that, most of us don't provide room for God. We, I mean, he, in order for his power and presence to be magnified, to be made bigger, we have to create space for that. But I don't think we're very good at that because we don't like that. Take a look at the slide here and tell me if this is not true. That the greatest obstacle to God's power and presence in our lives is our self-sufficiency and desire to control. Some of you know I just nailed you. Right? This is the thing that we are so busy keeping our arms wrapped around it, controlling it. We don't want to be out of control. We don't want to have stuff beyond what we can, we can affect or handle. We want to keep it all tight and keep it all here. And if it's beyond that, we don't want to risk it. But it is the beyond that part that God shows up. It is that when we come to the end of ourselves, when we have nothing to do but trust God, that space for him to be present and powerful, for him to be magnified and bigger. See, I believe that in every Christian's life, God grants opportunities for a Rahab-sized risk. For us, he, he, he invites us to come beyond ourselves, to come to the end of ourselves and keep moving towards him in a step of trust and of faith as we deal with, with, these, with these huge risks. And it may be in your marriage or your career. It may be in your finances or, or, or a relationship. But at some point, multiple points in a Christian's life, you are going to hear from God that he will speak to you through his word, through another person speaking truth, or he may just simply impress it on your heart. A bold move he wants you to make. That a risky step out in faith that he wants you to do. And if it is a Rahab-sized risk, you will recognize it because it will freak you out. It will mess you up. You're gonna, God's going to tell you something. You're going to go, wait, 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 God, you want me to do that? But, 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 but what's going to happen in that relationship if I do that? Or he tell you something else, and you're like, wait, wait, God, but if, if I take that stand at work, or if I make that move at work, or if I don't sign off on this deal at work, I mean, there's no way I'm going to advance my career or be able to, to do what I need to. Or, or, or wait, God, my finances? Slow your roll. You're not talking to me about me risking my finances, are you? Hold on here. It's called time out. But here's the deal. If it is, if it is a Rahab-sized risk, it is going to require radical trust. And I know this from firsthand experience. It was about 18 years ago, Shane, Phil, Shane Phillip, our pastor, asked me to come plant this church with him. And I was at Canyon Ridge, which was a great church over in the, over in the uh, northwest part of town. And, and, and I'd only been there for literally less than a year. I'd stepped out of the corporate world into the ministry world. I'd only been doing that for less than a year. And I was still reeling from that risk. And Shane's going, hey, let's go start something brand new. What do you say? 
And I'm like, but, but Canyon, man, that's my entire spiritual life had been at Canyon. I met Jesus at Canyon. All my friends are at Canyon. Canyon is a great church. It's established. They know what they're doing. And the payroll is going to keep happening every week. And I'm pretty excited about that. And he says, no, let's go do this new thing. We're going to go in the Southwest where, where nobody is. And we're going to do this thing. And, you know, for many of you, you're thinking, well, yeah, it's Shane. How would you not follow him? But I got to tell you, most of you guys know the, um, the, the, the stately, wise version of Shane. <laughs> Let me show you a picture of the guy that was asking me to take this leap. This kid's 12 years old, and, and I'm supposed to put my faith and trust for me and my family and my kids in that move? That was a Rahab-sized risk right there. And so, so, but because you're supposed to pray about these things, we did. And so my wife and I, we prayed about it. We saw God talk to friends, and ah, wouldn't you know it, God says, you need to make that move. And it's like, all right. And so we left the comfort and safety of a church we loved. And we came over and began this thing, and we had no idea what we were doing. And those early years were hard. I mean, there was, we were run out of money, and didn't, none of us knew what we were doing. And, and just so you have an idea of the kind of leader that Shane is, um, for the first few years, probably up to five years of the, of the church, every time I would come up to preach, right before I'd come up, he would lean over to me, and he would whisper encouragingly into my ear, you know we're just one bad sermon away from having to close the doors. No lie, every time. <laughs> well, spoiler alert, uh, the church survived. It worked out okay, right? <laughs> but more to the point, um, the life, my life and my family's life looks so different. That as we stepped out and took that risk based on God's leading God has been able to show off in so many ways in our life. He's been so generous to us, and he's just been so, so protective of us. I mean, we've been through all kinds of things in the last 18 years, and we've experienced the goodness and the generosity of God and, and opportunities that we wouldn't have had had we played it safe. And let me just say this. As much as I like to give Shane a hard time because he makes it so easy, here's the reality. The reality is he is an incredible leader and a solid man of God. Absolutely. And because of the risk that we took, you know, I've been able to learn from that man. I'm a better husband and father and pastor and leader because of him. And all this, because we took that Rahab risk and got beyond ourselves, out, outside of ourselves. Because of the risk that she took, Rahab is listed in, in, in history, that she is listed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. She's mentioned three different times in the New Testament as a giant of the faith. In the book of Hebrews, she is listed alongside other giants of the faith like Noah and Moses. I mean, she is listed in a roll call, hall of fame, hall of faith. But one of the things I find interesting is the writer of Hebrews, before he lists many of those names, the writer of Hebrews lists what the type of faith that we need to, have a to take a Rahab risk looks like. He almost defines faith for us. Consider this passage out of Hebrews 11. 
He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I want you to see this here. In this is the the, the chemistry, the makeup for the type of faith that you must have in order to take risks like this. Two parts. One, you must believe that God exists. That makes sense, right? But secondly, and if not just as importantly, you must believe that God wants good things for you. You've got to believe that he, earnest, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And what I love about this is it doesn't say he rewards those who memorize scripture really well, or he, he rewards those who, who, who are perfectly obedient every single time and get it right all the time and are perfect. He didn't say that. He rewards those who earnestly seek him, who just desire and hunger after him. And I think this is so important because I know there are people in this room right now that right now your Rahab risk is believing that. The biggest risk God has put before you right now is believing not only that he, that he exists, but that he actually has good plan for you, that he desires good for you, that he wants to reward you and give you good things. Because you're so busy thinking, no, man, there's no way. Maybe for some of these other good church people, yeah. But not for me, not what I've done. Not what's been done to me, not the kind of past I have, not the regret, regrets I have, not the mistakes I had, not where I was last night. If God would look at me right now, there's no way he has good plan for me. Well, let me just say that. Let me just say this to those of you that are struggling with that right now. Let me just recap Rahab's life. Because of her trust that God exists and that he wants good for her, because she risked so big, God was able to, first of all, give her an epic love story. Can we just acknowledge that? The prince married the prostitute. Come on. It doesn't get much bigger than that. He gives her an epic love story and places her in history, gives her a place in history I mean, do you understand that, that, that she's in the genealogy of Jesus? Do you understand that God took this person, this, this, this heathen harlot, and took some of her DNA to literally create the, the savior of mankind? All right, Can he, maybe he could do something awesome in your life, do you think? Maybe? Seriously, people, come on. And for some of you, maybe it's another risk that he's asking you to take. Maybe it's another step out. It's something just as bold, and I don't know what it has to do with, you know, but, but, but I heard one time uh, somebody said, sometimes you just have to write a check that only the Holy Spirit can cash, right? Sometimes you just got to, you got to step out there so far that unless, unless God shows up, you know, you're going you're gonna to do a, a double face plan on, on a half pipe somewhere, right? You got to step out there, and I'm not talking about stupid risks, I'm not saying about just you know, testing God and doing something stupid, but I'm saying based on God impressing on your life something he wants you to do that out of just obedience and trust, you come to the end of yourself and you keep marching because God tells you to. If you were honest with yourself right now and honest with God, what is that in your life? What is the Rahab risk that God is calling you to make? And maybe it's something, you know, with, your, with, with a relationship or with your job or career or your, or your finances. Or maybe it has something to do with all the stuff we've been talking about these past couple of weeks. 
Maybe God's calling you to, 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 to step outside your comfort zone and, and get committed with one of our partners and just do something significant with one of our partners. For some of you, he's saying, I want you to come to the end of yourself. I want you to put yourself in a position that you have no control. Then maybe it's about jumping on a plane and going on one of our mission teams, a place where you are completely out of control and discover just how big and incredible God is. Maybe, for, maybe, maybe right now, you may, you may be desiring that. You may be going, yeah, I want that. I want to take that kind of risk because I want to experience God in that way. But maybe you just literally don't know what it is. I would encourage you to begin to pray risky prayers. And you know the risky prayers when as you're praying them, you are terrified. You begin to pray bold prayers like, God, I, I want that. I want whatever it's going to take for me to see, you know, to experience your presence and your power more than I am now. And so, God, you bring that risk to my door, and I'm going to open it, welcome it in, and we're going to jump in together. Years ago, my wife and I began to pray risky prayers, especially when our, when our kids were early in their teens. Our kids were, for the most part, they were good. You know, they were good church kids. They were respectful and polite and didn't get in any, you know, super serious trouble there in the early days. And but we weren't happy because we wanted more for them than good church kids. We wanted, we wanted them to be people who desired and hungered for God, for people who just depended solely on him, for those people that were willing to take risks in his name. And so we begin to pray very dangerous prayers. We begin to pray, God, we don't want good church kids. We want kids that just have a heart for you and love you and are willing to do whatever it takes to, to know you better. And so, God, whatever it takes, bring it into our family. Whatever it takes for our kids to have an opportunity of just being desperate for you. And that literally led into one of the most tumultuous times of our life. As a family, it was hard and it was painful. But as we felt stuck and hopeless and helpless, God became more and more powerful. As we felt alone and, 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 and detached and, and, and isolated, God's presence became even more magnified. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that whatever, I'm not saying the risk is always going to turn out the way you want it to. I'm not saying that. But in fact, lots of times, it may not. But I will tell you this, that every single time I've taken a Rahab risk, God has become just more present, more powerful, more real in my life. And that is worth any risk we can take. And that's what I want for you guys. So with your permission, I just want to pray over you and pray that for you. Father God, I just pray right now for every open and willing heart in this room, that even as we are speaking right now, even in this very moment, you are beginning to raise up within them what their risk is. Begin to raise up with them the next action, that bold movement you want them to take, that thing that you've been dangling before them, that you make it very clear or maybe, they, maybe begin to put in, in, in their hearts and minds what risky prayers they need to begin doing. 
God, I just pray that you see the desire of their heart to know you, to experience you, to trust you, and that you raise up that opportunity for them to step into to take that. God, because I know your goodness and faithfulness over our life. And I know that as we pray those prayers, we are guaranteed that we are in alignment with yours because you want that for our lives. I pray blessing for each person here. And I pray that even as you raise up that direction in their lives, you raise up their peace and you raise up their courage that they may follow you well. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.